If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the life of the medieval king Henry III with David Carpenter. David is Professor of Medieval History at King's College London and the author of a new biography of the 13th century monarch, the first volume of which has just been published. I spoke to him to find out what Henry was like as a man and why he's often been overlooked as a monarch. Henry III hasn't received as much limelight as some of his predecessors and his successors. Why do you think that is and why do you think that we should study him and he does deserve a place in the spotlight? Right. Well, the answer to the first question is he's not so easy to categorise as some other kings. So bad King John is very easy to categorise, Henry III's father. Equally, Henry III's son, Edward I, is easy to categorise as a legislator, but also as the person who conquered Wales and nearly conquered Scotland, the hammer of the Scots. These are people easy to grasp, whereas Henry III doesn't really fit into those easy categories. And of course, that's the main reason, or one of the main reasons, for wanting to study him, because he is an absolutely fascinating king. And we, he's a different type of king, and a king we can know more about personally, just on his day-to-day life, than I think any other medieval monarch. This is because of these amazing letters which are, are preserved on the rolls of what are called a chancery. The chancery is an office travelling with the king which writes all his letters. And very few of those original letters survive. But in Henry's reign, they were all recorded on these amazing rolls which do survive. And they don't survive for his predecessors. And it's very different for his successors because the chancery no longer travels with the king and so these rolls no longer have his personal orders. Now, some of these letters on the chancery rolls, just sort of bog-standard things which are routine business, probably the king doesn't actually know about them, but many others are highly personal to the king, almost certainly dictated by him, and they give an extraordinary insight into him as a connoisseur of art, as a man of great piety, as someone with a sense of humour, as someone who's actually very lazy and loves a comfortable life. And so we can get closer, I think, to the to the inside of Henry III, to get inside his mind, than, than as I say, any other medieval monarch. I ought to say, too, of course, that he was a king in a new age. The environment in which he lived was very, very different from that of his predecessors. So he's the first king who has to cope with the restrictions of Magna Carta, the first king who has to deal with the power of Parliament, and the first king too has to deal with a rising tide of English national feeling. So things are very different from Henry for any of his 12th century predecessors. You mentioned there that one of the issues he had to deal with was Magna Carta, of course sealed by his father, King John. How much of a shadow, if that's the right way of putting it, did that cast over Henry's reign? Yeah, Magna Carta is the great 
great thing overhanging Henry's reign. Henry actually... Uh, the actual definitive version of Magna Carta was not King John's Charter of 1215, but the charter Henry issued 10 years later in 1225. And that made meant that Henry's kingship was profoundly different from that of any previous king. He's the first king who has to deal with all these restrictions on what he can and cannot do. Now, there's a considerable debate, I think, about how far Henry's rule was congruent with Magna Carta. Did he obey it? Lots of contemporaries said he didn't. But actually, I think one of the things I think my research has shown is that his kingship was genuinely very different because of the Charter and the kind of bullying arbitrary conduct of his father, charging large sums of money to recover the king's goodwill, uh, charging money to recover land he'd seized without any legal process. All that goes out under Henry. And whereas people were offering John £20,000, £30,000 a year for all sorts of concessions and favours, under Henry it's about £5,000 a year. Total change in the sort of willful nature uh, of kingship. And so Henry, in some ways, is a very ideal king for the Magna Carta age because he, he does fit into that kind of image. He's a peacemaker. He's easygoing. He's so different from his father. I mean, his father is manipulative, spiky, unpleasant, constantly jabbing at people and trying to humiliate them, punish them. Henry's not like that at all. He's easygoing, warm-hearted, too generous, over-generous. And, and his itinerary is so different. I mean, John, his father, hardly spends two or three days in the same place, whereas ha Henry loves the comfortable life. And we see all this from his letters, because his letters, uh, ev every one of his letters ends with a place date. So you can actually see where Henry was on almost every day of the year. And what it shows is he loved this sort of easygoing life in which he spends weeks, sometimes months, at his favourite palaces and palace castles in the south. So Westminster, Windsor, Winchester, Marlborough. The furthest north is Woodstock. And he spent his time embellishing them, making them more comfortable, enhancing their religious and secular meaning in paintings and sculpture and so on. So in that sense, Henry was the ideal king for this post-Magna Carta age. See, all those traits do sound very attractive to a 21st century perspective, peacemaking, laid back, easygoing. But how did they measure up to contemporary expectations of kingship? Were they what people wanted from a medieval king? In some ways, yes. I think what Henry showed was that you didn't have to be a militaristic king in order to win the affection and respect of your subjects. And I mean, central to Henry's life was his piety. And that was widely admired. And central to the piety, which again is entirely new, was his devotion to his patron Saint Edward the Confessor, the last great Anglo-Saxon king buried in Westminster Abbey, canonised in 1161. And what Henry did was to rebuild Westminster Abbey in his honour. And that's Henry's greatest legacy. Now, Henry was widely regarded and revered as a, a, a most Christian king, a rex Christianissimus. And so I think he did show that, you know, you don't have to be a great warrior to win the respect of your subjects. I, I mean, Henry, in that sense, had invested a tremendous amount in that kind of pietistic, soft power. 
So you, you might also come on to ask me then, why at the end was there a great revolution in 1258, which stripped him of power? Because there is another side to your question. Yes, in one way, Henry was, uh, I think we can say, revered by his subjects. And yet, on the other hand, they come round in 1258 and they strip him of power. So you might think, what's going on? But just to dig in a bit deeper about, just about his piety, um, how did that intense piety shape his decision-making? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, it shaped his decision-making rather badly. And it, I think it's a question of Henry had blind faith, in a way. And, of course, the classic example of that was his madcap scheme in the 1250s to place his second son, Edmund, on the throne of Sicily. Now, um, that was very problematic from the start because it was the Pope who was offering the throne of Sicily to Edmund and yet, in a way, it wasn't the Pope's to give because Sicily was actually occupied by the fearsome illegitimate son of the late Emperor Frederick II, whose name was Manfred. So if Henry was actually to make good this claim to Sicily, he had to take an army out there and conquer Sicily. Well, that was going to be difficult in the best of times. It was certainly difficult for Henry, who was a rex pacificus, who had no um, uh, no kind of sort of um, expertise in the business of war. So this was an impossible project. And what's extraordinary is that Parliament told Henry. It told Henry, this is an impossible project. You'll never be able to bring it off. The conditions the Pope is imposing uh, are ridiculous. And Henry actually wrote an amazing letter. This is where we get an insight from these letters. He actually wrote a letter to the Pope saying this. He said, everyone tells me that I shouldn't go on with this project, that it's impossible. Uh, The conditions you're imposing are uh, are just simply ridiculous. Um, So why am I going on? And he then goes on to say, ah, well, um, placing my trust in God who can move mountains and quell tempests, I I nonetheless profoundly believe that this will be successful. And on the day he signs up, he uh, makes a splendid offering to Edward the Confessor in Westminster Abbey uh, so that the Confessor will bring a happy ending to the Sicilian project. Well, of course, I'm afraid neither God nor the Confessor did uh, move mountains and quell tempests on Henry's behalf. I mean, it was just a most extraordinary example of how faith, blind faith, Henry's piety, he thought these would get him through. And of course they didn't. And the whole um, the whole scheme was a disaster and seemed to sum up Henry's incompetence, really. And that was the, one of the main causes for the revolution of 1258, that he'd seemed to reduce the kingdom to what the um, barons called an imbecilic state. Did that inability to kind of make pragmatic decisions, did that play out within England as well? I think it's important here to first of all think that Henry is no pushover. He's a king with ambition. He wants to do things. He wanted to make his son uh, king of Sicily. He wants to build Westminster Abbey. But another one of his great ambitions put him at odds with the Englishness of his subjects. And Henry, in a very generous, warm-hearted way, wanted to establish his wife's foreign relatives in England. They came from Savoy. And then later, he wanted to establish his own half-brothers, who had grown up in Poitou, in England too. And here I think Henry's naivety and simplicity 
comes in because his attitude was that everyone should be pleased at the fact that I am linking to England these very intelligent, clever um, relatives of mine from outside the kingdom. Um, Of course, people didn't think like that. They thought that he was pouring far too much patronage into the hands of foreigners who had brought nothing to the kingdom. And Henry just didn't have the political skills to see how dangerous this was, but also perhaps to see how it could have been made to work. I mean, he's a king with ambition, but with no real grasp of how to achieve it, how to get from a to be. I mean, he's also king with, uh, with ambition, uh, as Lady Macbeth said to Macbeth, without the illness should attend it, which was a saving grace, in that in the end, he's often prepared to back down, change course, think, oh my God, that was silly of me. I shouldn't have done that. I mean, the letters are full of apologies, apologising for, for this and that, and for making mistakes and offending his brother, uh, King Richard. I, I, I suppose I'm giving a in some ways too negative impression, because Henry's peacemaking was, of course, huge benefit to the realm before 1258. I mean, he makes a very statesmanlike peace with Scotland and regards the King of Scotland, King Alexander III, as is his son-in-law, and Henry regards him as a son. So, you know, there's no wars with Scotland in Henry's reign. Equally, although he campaigned in Wales, if you look at the... And I think there's another thing... I comes out in my book, if you look at the actual um, course of events, the, the campaigns in Wales are always last resorts. And, I mean, he, he, just, he doesn't... Just, whereas he could in the 1240s have conquered Wales completely, he had, in a way, the right to do so. He just passes it up and allows the, the Welsh rulers, the Gwyneth, to, to continue in place. So, I mean, England benefited hugely from both external peace in Henry's reign... But, there, but many, many years of internal peace before the final civil war of the 1260s. And he was widely praised for that. I mean, the great chronicler of the age, Matthew Paris, who died in 1259 before, mercifully, the civil war, I mean, he says, um, you know, this king has, has brought us Westminster Abbey, but has also brought us many years of peace. We have a new network of markets and fairs. We have the work of the friars and bishops concerned, pastoral-minded bishops concerned with the religious life of their flock. I mean, all these good things flowed from the peace. So I feel like we've been building up now towards 1258 when revolution was launched against Henry. Can you tell us how events unfolded? Yeah. The first problem in 1258 was the the state of the Sicilian affair. I mean, it just simply reached ridiculous proportions in which the Pope was threatening to excommunicate the king, threatening to place an interdict on the kingdom because Henry was completely unable either to send an army to Sicily or to um, pay all the money the Pope wanted for the concession. So that seemed to sum up the problem... uh, over foreign policy, if you like. Um, But there was also terrible internal factional strife within Henry's court. Henry had wanted his foreign relatives and the great English nobles to intermarry, get on together. He wanted a harmonious court. Uh, But he'd been unable to achieve it. And 1258 was the year in which the court broke apart. Uh, the Queen played a very important role there. And one of the striking features of 
Henry's reign is the the role of the Queen, Queen Eleanor of Provence, who came from Provence. I mean, partly because of Henry's indulgence and love with her, it created huge space for her to act politically. And she has a very clear political ambition. This is all coming back to 1258. She had a very clear political position, which was to promote the uh, her, her uncles who came from Savoy and established them in England, and also to look after the interests of the son and heir, Edward I. And the problem in 1258 was that she had quarrelled bitterly with the second group of foreigners, Henry's half-brothers. So the Henry's half-brothers from Poitou hated the, the Queen and the Savoyards, and it was that which exploded in 1258, with English nobles taking uh, both sides in this quarrel. And so the first problem of 1258 was the imbecilic state of the, of the Sicilian affair. The second was that the court had split apart, and one group of courtiers, in which the Queen played an important part, uh, turned on the other group, the King's half-brothers, and expelled them from England. And so from then on, a, a baronial council is set up to govern the country and, uh, on the grounds that ki the king has proved himself incompetent to do that. Now, that also linked in, though, with a failure of local reform. And I think one of the worst features of Henry and in a way of his... And it's sad that his piety and devotion to the confessor didn't lead him to do this. He'd failed to reform the realm. He had not legislated... Uh, for the the good of ordinary people in the counties. Uh, local government was becoming more and more oppressive. And, and it's a strange thing that Henry hadn't, just hadn't seen that. I think he'd become increasingly remote, focused on Sicily, things like that. And so what happened in 1258 was a coalescence of the court breaking apart, the incompetence of the Sicilian affair, with deep feelings of anger in the counties about the failure to reform local government, the oppression of the sheriffs and the king's judges and so on. And those two things coalesced in this great revolution. I don't know. I mean, where would I have been in 1258? Um, I think I would have had a lot of sympathy, to be honest, with the with the revolution. Uh, I would have thought that Henry had just shown himself incompetent to rule and that maybe a baronial council would do much better. And they did do great things to try and reform the realm. Do we have any sense of how Henry felt about the revolution or how he responded to the crisis? He doesn't strike me from your description as a man who would have responded incredibly well to crisis. It's a very, do you know, this is a very difficult question and it goes back to the source material to answer what was Henry's actual reaction to what had happened. Because down to 1258, we have all these wonderful letters in which, which reveal all kinds of things about the king. But from 1258 onwards, for a couple of years, the letters aren't the king's anymore. They're basic, although they're issued in his name, they're basically the letters of the baronial council ruling the country. And so... It's as though Henry, having been the main actor on the stage, has now been reduced to a bit part, you know, speaking the occasional line. Um, and so it's quite difficult to know. I think, I think his mood shifted. I think that he, uh, on one part of him, he just gave up and thought, you know, I'd let them get on with it. But on the other hand, 
as things developed, I think he felt increasingly humiliated and insulted by what was going on. And later on, he does speak in the most bitter terms about the conduct of the council, how they held their meetings apart from him, how they treated him like a ward, a sort of boy uh, controlled by by guardians, um, how they just didn't consult him at all, although he was the head of the council. And so in the end he is very, very keen to overthrow these restrictions and ultimately succeeds in in doing so. It's a sad time for him in a way, you know, because a lot of his closest friends have been expelled from England, his half-brothers from Poitou, all their followers. So the court is a, a much more alien place to him. Whereas before 1258, I think it had often been a very happy place. There was a lot of laughter at Henry III's court. And, of course, these letters show Henry's sense of humour in all kinds of different ways. Can you give some examples of how they show his humour? Yeah. Uh, um, Well, some of the humour is rather a slapstick variety. So um, when Henry went to visit Bath in uh, in the 1250s, he had his jester thrown in. And we know that from a letter, because Henry then immediately wrote a letter asking for the jester to be given a new suit of clothes to replace those ruined when Henry had him thrown into the bath at Bath. There were other actually slightly more sophisticated type of, of humour in that in the ship coming home from Gascony in 1243. And this is a fascinating thing from his letters because so often you don't really know whether medieval monarchs are making a joke or not. But here actually the letter in the in these roles actually says the king was making a joke. And what he said, what he ordered to happen is that a lot of absolutely ridiculous debts incurred by one of his clerks called Peter the Poitevin should be written on the roll. And the idea clearly was that in the ship, the, this clerk would come up and look at the roll and think, oh my God, what is going on? How have I incurred all these absurd debts? And of course, Henry would be standing there laughing with his entourage. But Henry actually didn't want it to go too far. He didn't want the debts to become official. And so he said, when Peter the Poitvin's not looking, I want these debts to be uh, crossed crossed out. There's another one which actually relates very much to my hair now, in a way, which hasn't been cut because of um, uh, COVID-19, um, in which Henry issues a very pompous letter empowering one of his clerks to kick to cut the very long hair of all the other clerks in the king's household. And then Henry says, and unless you do it, I shall have to take the scissors to your own hair myself. Could I just say a little bit more about the nature of Henry's piety? Henry's letters give us a tremendous insight into the, the nature of his piety. And the first aspect of it was feeding the poor, alms giving to the poor, and I think this was this was something. Of course, everyone had done it's biblical. It goes back centuries. All kings fed the poor. Henry does it on an entirely new scale, and in the twelve forties, we know he was feeding five hundred paupers at court every day. And on special occasions, like the feast days of Edward the Confessor, he fed thousands more. So that one feast day, the 13th of October 1260, of which we got records, he fed 5,016 paupers on the, the feast day. So he must have crammed them in to 
to Westminster Hall. So that was one aspect of his piety. The other was his devotion to the mass, uh, attendance at the mass. And the the stories were slightly apocryphal that he sometimes attended four or five masses every day. Records don't quite support that, but on special occasions he could have three masses a day. I think it's inconceivable that Henry misbehaved at mass like many of his predecessors. I mean, it's notorious that earlier kings had sort of doodled during mass and held conversations and so on. King John was even rumoured never to have taken communion, I think, uh, uh, wrongly, but Henry's devotion to divine service, and that fits in again with the evidence of the letters, with constant expenditure on vestments, chalices, religious paintings in his chapels. He surrounds himself with the beautiful religious objects. The, the third aspect of his piety, um, very much applauded then, abhorrent now, and again knew no king had done this before, was his effort to uh, convert the Jews to Christianity. And in what is now Chancery Lane, he established a a house where those converts could could all, all live together. So, I mean, this was, again, very widely praised, this effort to convert the Jews to Christianity. And what the worst part of it was that Henry also is the first king to sanction the belief that in macabre parody of the crucifixion of Christ, um, Jews would capture little Christian boys and then then crucify them. And that was supposed to have happened at Lincoln in 1255, and Henry descended on the town, 19 Jews were executed. I mean, it was all completely false, um, but Henry nonetheless sanctioned that belief. And so that was a, a, a far... Um, a a baleful um, aspect of his personality. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The great legacy, of course, are the great churches built, Salisbury Cathedral, and above all, the great legacy of Henry Westminster Abbey. Um, As for the tragedy of the reign um, and the civil war, I blame Simon de Montfort. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So you're incredibly lucky as a historian to have source material that's so rich from this period. Yeah, I think it is very, very uh, vivid. And, of course, it also takes us into Henry as the uh, the connoisseur. And, I mean, one of the most extraordinary sources, uh, all this material about Henry's building projects and, you know, how very, very closely involved he was. I think Henry was very in tune with it's what you might call the new expressivity in sculpture and art, so the, the expression of emotion. And and so, for example, he he wants cherubims painted in the chapel, in the church at the Tower of London, to have a joy, joyful expression. He actually says, you know, they ought to look joyful. But it, and equally, when he wants a, a painting of winter, 
uh, over a fireplace. He says, you know, by its sad looks and miserable appearance of its body, it ought to look like, uh, justly likened to winter. In, in that sense, I guess, um, the fact that he had such a long reign allowed him to indulge in these in these epic projects like Westminster Abbey. What were some of the other impacts of his reign being so long compared to many at the time? Yeah, I think the, the first... Politically, the first importance of the reign was the implantation of Magna Carta into political life. And that was partly the way the king's subjects took it to their hearts. And one of the most interesting discoveries about Magna Carta in the last few years has been that it was copied again and again and again. And it was studied and the different versions were compared and contrasted People wrote memoranda about them. So it was very much the reverse of what some people have sometimes claimed about Magna Carta in the 13th century, that it was a vague document, but no one knew what was in it. Absolutely the the reverse of that. I remember going to St. Petersburg in the uh, 2015 uh, anniversary year and talking about Magna Carta there and stressing this. And it was a group of Russian human rights lawyers, and they were very interesting. They said... Gosh, what a contrast to the current Russian constitution, because the current Russian constitution has got all kinds of good things in it, but no one knows what they are. No one knows anything about it. Whereas Magna Carta, everybody, I mean, everyone in the political world knew the detail as well as the overall principle, which was the king was subject to law. So that was one major uh, event, I think, political event in Henry's reign. The other, of course, was the growing power of Parliament. I mean, Henry is the first king who has to deal with the power of Parliament. And and that's, above all, the power over the purse strings. So Henry was the first king who needed, because of the restrictions of Magna Carta, and because of the diminution of the king's kingship's landed base, Henry is the first king who needs desperately taxation granted by Parliament. Not to live on a day-to-day basis, but if he's going to do anything grander, uh, like, say, put his son on the throne of Sicily, he has to have taxation from Parliament. And, of course, from the word go, in the 1240s and 1250s, Parliament demands major concessions in return for any grant of a tax. And so, so that transforms the whole political landscape. Parliament meets again and again. Over 50 parliaments met in the 1230s, 40s, 50s. And it becomes central to English life as it's never done before. And in some ways, Henry was very well suited to that because I say he he was affable, he was easygoing. Um, and, and also he, he was a speech maker and he was quite vocal. And yet, on the other hand, he's very unsuited because, you know, however people think, well, this is a good and pious king and, you know, he's uxorious, he has no bastards and mistresses and so on. However much we admire that, nothing can conceal the fact that he's incompetent when it comes to the business of kingship. And it seems with those new conditions that he was working under that nobody had really um, had to deal with before, had to negotiate. It doesn't come as a massive surprise that he came into rough waters then. You know, it is more difficult business being a king in the 13th century than it had been in the 12th. He's having to deal with much more complex situations created by Parliament, Magna Carta, and, of course... He's also, of course, lost the great continental empire, 
which the kings have had since the the con- since the Norman Conquest. So he's diminished in that way too. So I, I think we ought to have sympathy uh, for Henry, uh, but also an awareness, as I've said, of his achievements and of the great peace he he created. Just to circle back round to 1258, um, of course you've you've. The book that you've just published is a first volume of That's two of right. this biography, which kind of takes us up to that point. <laughs> yeah, so don't want to give too many spoilers. But for listeners who perhaps are uh, thinking, but what happened next? I wonder if you could give us a slight um, sense of that. Well, volume two, which I'm revising at the moment and hope to hand into Yale, uh, will hand into Yale next year, um, it covers the rest of the reign from 1258 to 1272. And it, yes, it looks at what happened next after the great political revolution um, stripping Henry of power. And it, it's, it's a tumultuous, exciting, but from Henry's point of view, and indeed for the kingdom's point of view, an unhappy time. I mean, first of all, I think that the very first phase of reform was highly successful. I mean, legislation was promulgated, a genuine attempt was made to reform local government. And in a most amazing way, the great baronial leaders said, in a way, they said, we too have sinned. Uh, We must reform our own conduct, as well as reforming the conduct of the king. And that was completely new. It hadn't happened in 1215. And I think that's a testimony to the wider religiosity of the age. But in the end, Henry recovers power in 1261, really because the royal family is reunited, he's reconciled to his wife on the one hand, and the baronial coalition splits apart. And I think that's really where it should have stopped. Um, But alas, uh, we haven't reckoned with Simon de Montfort, because Simon de Montfort, who is most extraordinary, and is in a way the the I can say the hero of volume two, uh, hero is perhaps the wrong word, the devil in volume two. Um, Simon de Montfort, the king's brother-in-law, not actually someone born in England at all, um, but who had this claim to the earldom of Leicester. So he's accepted by the king as Earl of Leicester in the 1230s. He marries the king's sister. He's a totally different character from Henry. Um, He is charismatic. He is warlike. He is also politically extremely astute. He knows what kinds of issues to exploit to make him popular. But he's also, like Henry, but in a very different way, deeply religious. And Montfort came to see the cause of reform of the realm as a sacred, holy mission. And while everyone else accepted the king's recovery of power in 1261, Montfort didn't. Instead, he said, I would rather die landless than depart from the truth and be perjured. And so he left for France. And he only comes back in 1263 when Henry, as a result of some awful miscalculations, has created a new coalition against him. And so that leads into the Civil War, the uh, Battle of Lewis, in which Montfort captures Henry, uh, and then over a year in which he's actually governing the country. It's the first person to seize power, sort of Cromwellian figure, and govern England in in the well, in this case, in the king king's name. And then he's finally defeated and killed at the Battle of Evesham on the fourth of August, twelve sixty five. And then it's even then it's two years before peace returns to England. But how, in the end, does Henry survive at all? Um, it's partly thanks to his son, because of course 
Henry's eldest son and heir is a totally different character. Is is a, a wonderful chivalric knight, uh, very uh, up in the business of war, and so in a way he rescues Henry. But also Henry has himself to think to thank, because whereas the barons wanted to actually depose King John, there was never any move to depose Henry, and I'm sure that's again because people had this deep respect for his piety, his Christianity, and also his personal life. You know, this is not an evil man. And I think that's, in the end, sees him through. And the last years of the reign, 1267-72, I mean, they are years in which Henry can be happy again. He resumes his comfortable life. And on the 13th of October, 1269, the great triumph of the reign, the great achievement, the lasting legacy. Westminster Abbey is consecrated and Edward the Confessor is moved to his new shrine in the Abbey. So that must that was the happiest day of Henry's life. For my final question, what's the final verdict on Henry's reign? Yes, uh, again, it's a complex one in a way. Uh, I think it should be the great peace of the first part of the reign, uh, a king very much in tune with post Magna Carta kingship. And the, the great legacy, of course, are the great churches built, Salisbury Cathedral, lots of parts of Lincoln, Worcester, Hereford, and above all, the great legacy of Henry Westminster Abbey. Um, as for the tragedy of the reign um, and the Civil War, I blame Simon de Montfort for that. That was David Carpenter. The first volume of his biography of Henry III is available now, published by Yale University Press. David has also written a feature on Henry III for the July issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes pieces on the Korean War, Charles Dickens, working mothers through history and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when John Nicholl will be talking about the Lancaster bomber. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.